Okay, uh, I'm back. So we are going to continue. We thought we'd do something totally new. We're going to preach out of 1 Kings. Uh, no, we're still in 1 Kings in our Kings series. Uh, now, the last few sermons have been focused on the prophet Elijah. And I mean, I, I, love, I love the stories about him. We're not done with him yet. But today, we are actually going to focus more on Ahab, the king of Israel. Okay, now remember, Ahab was like the most evil king that Israel ever had. Right? But today we're going to see that Ahab's going to get an opportunity to experience the power of God uh, in two very special ways. One way he's going to, is positive and one way is negative, and we'll look at that here in a minute. But by doing that, it's going to kind of give us a glimpse into the, the true character and the heart of Ahab. Now, how people react to God moving in their lives reveals a lot about them, and that's something we're going to see in Ahab today. Uh, some people experience God's presence, and they experience His power, and it just excites them, and it draws them nearer to God. And then you have other people who can experience almost the same thing, yet they're going to you know, ignore or take for granted the power of God, right? So regardless how people react, God is always going to try to reach out to them. He's always going to try to reach out to us no matter what. What we do with that opportunity that He presents to us is totally up to us, and that's why I uh, titled the message today, You Can Lead a Horse to Water. I think you know the rest of that, right? But you can't make it drink. There's, God is going to lead us to water. He's going to lead us to an opportunity, and he will do that for the rest of our lives. What we do with that opportunity is totally up to us. Now, just to get you caught up, last week Nate discussed Elijah's victory over the 450 prophets of Baal. How many people like that story? That's like one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love that, right? Um, or that was two weeks ago, actually. Uh, and was it? Yeah, it was two weeks ago, right? And then last week, uh, we got to discuss kind of Elijah's depression. Because, you know, Jezebel, after that happened, she said, I'm going to put you to death. And he took it to heart, and he should, because she had already killed many prophets, and he knew that it wasn't an empty threat. So it kind of sent him into uh, a depression, right? So um, after that, he got to appoint his successor, Elisha. We'll come back to him eventually. But this week, God is going to teach Ahab who he really is. And he's going to teach Ahab who he really is. And he's also going to show Elijah something very important. He's going to show Elijah that, that the common denominator in every great miracle is God. Okay, that's as quick as I can get you caught up. All right, so we're going to jump into chapter 20 today. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. Let's follow along. First Kings chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Ben-Hadad, king of Arab, gathered all his army, and there were 32 kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up to, and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Then he sent messengers to the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your most beautiful wives and children are also mine. Remember that. The king of Israel replied, It is according to your word, my lord, O king. I am yours and all that I have. Okay. So Ben-Hadad was the king of, of Aram, which is Syria, and we're just going to refer to it as Syria, same thing, right? And this is Israel's neighbor to the north. Now, we discussed Ben-Hadad before. If you remember, back when we were talking about Asa, the king of Judah, uh, he needed a distraction from Israel when they were about to go to war, and so he kind of hired Ben-Hadad and the Syrians as mercenaries to kind of distract and deal with Israel because the Syrians were, I mean, fearless warriors, and they were so experienced in battle, and they were ruthless. And so he used them kind of as, as mercenaries. Now we see Ben-Hadad again, and again he's coming to challenge Israel. Now Ben-Hadad, he has a lot of pride and arrogance in him. 
And, and his arrogance is really evident here. It becomes really clear that he doesn't fear or respect Israel at all. And you can see it in his arrogant speech and the way he addresses someone he's about to go to battle with. Actually, if you pay attention, it, it almost sounds like he's trying to pick a fight. He's almost saying things that he knows no one would agree to just to pick a fight. Right? So basically, he said, give me all your money, your hot wives, and your good-looking children. This is what he asked for. Okay, now, Ben-Hadad's request, I mean, it's nuts, right? I mean, it seems shocking and it seems ridiculous, right? But what's, what's even more shocking, is did, you, did you notice how Ahab replied to this? Did you notice this? I mean, no fight, no, hey, you're insulting me, no, take the glove off and slap you on each side of your face, right? He just basically says, okay, you can have all my money and you can have my best-looking wives and you can have my best-looking kids. Okay, now, I know you guys got to be thinking this because I am. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that because I, I think weird. But can you imagine what Jezebel's thinking right now, his wicked, evil wife? So think about that. If she goes to Syria, that means that he didn't care enough about her to fight for her. He's just sending her to Syria. But <laughs> if she stays, she was too ugly. Think about that. Right? And, and think about his kids. Like, kids don't have enough to be self-conscious about, right? Imagine the kids who are good-looking. Get, they get sent to Syria to live, you know, with a madman, basically. But the kids who are left behind are going, man, I'm too ugly to take captive. I mean, this is the situation that just blows me away. And just immediately, though, he doesn't fight for it. He just says, okay, everything I have is yours, Right? And so after he agrees, Ben-Hadad makes an even more disrespectful demand. And this is what makes me think he's assuming sooner or later he'll say no. He's trying to pick a fight. 1 Kings 20, starting in verse 5, it says, Then the messengers returned and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Surely I sent to you, saying, You shall give me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants and whatever is desirable in your eyes, so whatever you like, whatever's important to you, they will take in their hand and carry away. Okay, so Ben-Hadad has already asked for his hot wives and his good-looking kids. He didn't want the ugly ones, right? Now he says, I decided I want more. I'm going to send my servants over, and they're just going to kind of pillage through your home, right? And through your servants' homes, and we're going to browse. And anything that we like or anything that we know you like, we're just going to take off with that. Okay, now this obviously troubled Ahab. Okay, finally, this troubled him, so he consults with his elders. Look at this, 1 Kings 27. It says, Then the king of Israel called uh, all the elders of the land and said, Please observe and see how this man is looking for trouble. For he sent to me uh, for my wives and my children and my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. Can you imagine what the elders are thinking about that time about him? He says, I didn't refuse him. I would have gave them up. Verse 8. All the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. So he said to the messenger of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king, notice this, all that you sent for to your servant at the first date I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. So he goes to the elders because... You know, he feels like this is going too far. I personally thought, you know, asking for your family was going too far, but this is going too far, right? And, and the elders are like, are you nuts? I mean, he wants your wives, he wants your children, he wants to just pillage the kingdom? Tell him no. 
But you notice when he says no, he's really polite about it, isn't he? He's really polite, you know, my Lord, the King, everything you've asked for, I would have already given you, but this I cannot do, right? So imagine how Ben-Hadad's going to receive this. As you can imagine, he's probably not used to hearing no, and he's not going to like hearing no. 1 Kings 20.10, Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, May the gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria will suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Okay, so after Ahab's, you know, reply, Ben-Hadad basically says, okay, I'm just going to annihilate you. I'm going to mop the floor up with you. I'm going to destroy you, crush you. You're going to be like dust. We're going to wipe you off the planet is basically what he says. Right, And after hearing that, something clicked in Ahab, and I don't know what happened, because this is like the only time you really see any stitch of bravery in this guy. Right, You just don't see it very often. But what he replied and how he replied to Ben-Hadad's threat is actually one of the coolest replies ever. Okay, listen to this, 1 Kings twenty eleven. It says, Then the king of Israel replied, Tell him, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. Okay. Do you know what he's saying there? I, I love this. Basically he's saying, don't act like the fight's over before the first punch is thrown. That's basically what he's saying. You may have heard it this way, what my southern family always used to say. You know, don't let your mouth write a check your body can't cash. You ever hear that one? Right? So this is basically, he got, he got tough all of a sudden. All of a sudden he's sounding like a legit Hebrew gangster. Because he's saying, don't act like you won. You know, don't act like you won. And when that gets back to Ben-Hadad... He prepares for battle. Look at this, 1 Kings 20, 12. It says, When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the temporary shelters, he said to his servants, Station yourselves. So they stationed themselves against the city. Now again, we see that Ben-Hadad really doesn't fear or respect Israel. Because Israel's taking a stand here and they're saying, We're not afraid. We will go to war with you. And instead of preparing for battle and going out and preparing his men for battle and going over strategies with generals, he is drinking and getting hammered, right? I mean, normally you would prepare for a battle. You know, he's playing quarters, okay? He's, this is literally, this word used here means that he was, he was drinking hard. He was trying to get drunk, okay? This is what he did on the eve of battle. He had no fear whatsoever, right? Now, and you ever notice the enemy treats us the same way Ben-Hadad treated Israel? Have you ever noticed that? Because he's, he's never happy until he takes everything we care about or destroys everything we care about. Have you ever noticed that? He will settle for nothing less. And like Ben-Hadad, he doesn't think we're strong enough to stop him because he just keeps coming. But the thing that Ben-Hadad's going to learn and the thing that I think the enemy needs to remember is that, you know, listen, it's not us he should fear. It's God moving in us he should fear. Because when we allow God to move through us and move in us, we're capable of doing things that people can't even imagine. And you're going to see that here in just a second as we move on. So let's look at verse 13. It says, Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab said, By whom? <laughs> He's the king of Israel and the God of Israel. Is sending him a message. I'm going to deliver you. And he says, who, I'm like, who are you going to deliver me? By what name? He's, can you imagine God going, my name, stupid. I'm God, right? He says, by whom? So he said, thus says the Lord, 
uh, by the young men of the rulers of the provinces. So he's saying, here's how you're going to do it. You're going to do it in my name, and you're going to do it with young men. This is really important. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? And he answered, you. Now imagine what he's thinking right here. He's already outnumbered with a brutal army. He said, so who's going to start this fight? And he said, you're going to start it, Ahab. You're going to start this fight, right? Verse 15. Then he mustered the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and there were 232 provinces. And and after them, he mustered all the people, even all the sons of Israel, 7,000. 7,000. That's going to be important. Okay, so God sends him a prophet and says, listen, God says he's going to give you Israel or Syria. He's going to help you defeat Syria. Right? I mean, this, this is a huge thing to happen, especially to the most evil king Israel had never, ever known. And he's probably thinking, why would God do that? Well, God had his reasons. God, God wanted to prove to him, he was the king of Israel, that I am the true God. I am worthy of your worship. Now, a lot of us think, why would he even reach out to this jerk? He's killed prophets. He's tore down temples. He's, he's made the place just, just a... You know, a place where all the idol worshipers gather. He's turned us into a pagan nation. Why would he do this? And the reason is, is God always gives everyone another chance. He always gives everyone another chance, no matter how evil we think they are. See, here's how it works. And, and you see this a lot with Christian people, but all people. See, we see big sins and little sins. That's how we view sin, right? And whether we'll admit it or not, we see people we think deserve heaven and people we think do not deserve heaven. Now, let's be honest. There's people that I could probably bring up their name and you would say there's no way that person deserves heaven, right? You guys going to act righteous? Saddam Hussein. How many people think he's a glorious example of someone who should be walking the streets of heaven? That's what I thought. You see what I mean? We see big sins, little sins. We see too evil or, or good enough. That's what we see. Right? But God sees sin as sin, and he is the solution to sin, so he wants to offer that solution to anyone who is afflicted with this disease called sin. It doesn't matter to God how bad that person is. If you haven't believed, it's bad enough for hell. You see what I mean? It doesn't matter if you're just a little old lady that the worst thing you did was shortchanged a Girl Scout on a box of cookies in your whole life. You still are a sinner. Right? All of us are. And when you, when you become a believer, you'll just be a sinner saved by grace. But God sees it differently than we do. And if Ahab at this moment had, had believed and sought God with all his heart, God would have blessed him and, and accepted him and made him a great king. Right? But he, as we'll see, he didn't. Now, the next thing the prophet said was he told him to gather 7,000 young men from 232 provinces. Does that 7,000, does that number ring out to anybody? Anybody remember that number? Because it should. It should sound familiar because Nate discussed this number. Okay? Listen to this. Remember, while all this is taking place, Elijah's on the sidelines. He's sitting the bench. He's not involved in any of this. Right? Because after defeating Baal's prophets, Jezebel threatened his life. Something changed in him. Right? Something changed in him. Elijah seemed to, like, slip into a severe depression. Nate talked about that last week. Right? And not only did he slip into a severe depression, you know how Nate talked about how when we're really depressed, we sometimes exaggerate things? Not only did he slip into a severe depression, he kind of, he kind of, he was kind of a whiner, wasn't he? Hey, listen to this, 1 Kings 19, 14. 
It says, then he said, this is Elijah, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I what? And I alone am left. Does that sound like a pity party to you? He's like, all the good things I've done for you, God. All the times I've stood like a rock. And they keep killing the prophets. And now it's down to just me. I alone am left as your prophet. And he says, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, I understand, you, you know, I'm not saying his faith is weak. Nate explained that last week. What I am saying is that is whining. You cannot dress that up. That is whining. So a few verses down in verse 18, God had to remind Elijah that accompanying his will was not solely based on what Elijah could and couldn't do. He was not the last prophet. First Kings 19, 18. He says, yet I will leave what? How many? 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. You starting to see a connection here? Listen to this. It's no coincidence that all this is going on and God isn't involving Elijah. There's no coincidence in that. You know, Nate, as Nate told you last week, he was whining, saying he was the only prophet. So now God makes a major move for Israel and uses an unnamed prophet. It's not Elijah he sends to him. He uses some no-name prophet to accomplish this, right? And then he says, he told him last week, he said, I have 7,000 men, you big baby, that have never bowed a knee to Baal, have never kissed his face. Okay, I threw in the big baby part, right? But he says, I still have 7,000 men. Now this week, the prophet tells Ahab to gather 7,000 young men from the 232 provinces. I believe this is the same people. I think he said, by the way, let me show you how this works. Sit the bench. You just keep book, okay? Sit the bench and watch what happens. I'm going to send a no-name prophet in. I'm not even going to mention his name. You don't need to know. He's one of mine that I still have. He's going to go to the king. We're going to do amazing things. And those 7,000 people, watch them work. See, I think this is God's way of showing Elijah, you're not the only servant. See, sometimes I think we forget that God wants us to serve him so that he can bless us. See, sometimes we feel like God needs me. I even heard somebody preach, I'll never forget this. They preached that if you're not faithful, someone you could have reached may go to hell. I'm like, seriously. Do you really think God would put the eternal destiny of someone else in your hands? Do you really think he could put the eternal destiny of someone else in any of our hands? People who won't change the TV without a remote will watch Home Shopping Network if we don't have the remote. You know what I mean? He's going he's gonna to put someone's eternal destination in that person's hand. Right? So he was just saying, listen, I don't need you. I want to use you so that I can bless you. And that's what God wants with us. He wants to use us so that he can bless our lives and through us be a blessing to other lives. Remember, every amazing thing that happens, no matter who did it in the Bible, the one common denominator is God, right? God is the author of all those amazing things that happen. So I think he needed to show Elijah that, listen, not only are you not the only prophet, I can do amazing things with people that no one will ever remember their name, and 7,000 nameless faithful people, and we will change the course of history for an entire nation 
without your help while you're sitting the bench. Okay, I think that's what that was all about. So let's move into the next section. Ahab actually does what he's told. Verse 16. It says, They went down, or they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the temporary shelters with 32 kings who helped him. Does anybody else think that's it? That is a little funny, isn't it? I mean, they made a point. This guy was getting hammered before battle, the evening before battle. Verse 17. The young men of the rulers of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, Men have come out from Samaria. Then he said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. That's important. We'll come back to that. Take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, what? Take them alive. So he's saying, Either way, take them alive. We'll come back to that. Verse 19. So he went out from the city. The young men of the rulers uh, of the provinces and the army which followed them, they killed each his man, so each one killed someone, meaning 7,000. And the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with horsemen. The king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and killed the Arameans and Syrians with a great slaughter. Okay, so back to the take them alive. A lot of people have read that, and they say, oh, it said, you know, take them alive one way or the other. That wasn't him being gracious. That wasn't him being merciful. See, the Syrians were cruel and brutal people, and they loved to display their power to other people. So they would often take their enemies alive on purpose. Now imagine how good their army had to be to win wars while taking most of the enemy alive. We're talking ninjas here, right? And the reason they would do that was they liked to take they're alive prisoners and make public examples of them. They would torture them publicly, humiliate them publicly. I told you this before. They would lay open their guts and pull their intestines out and tie them to a horse and drag them through town so everyone would see the kings and the, and the royal family's guts dragging behind them behind a horse. They would do terrible, terrible things to their captives, and they felt that by doing that, they intimidated their future enemies. That's why people were so afraid of Aram or of Syria because they were that cruel they figured not only would it you know keep the future enemies at bay but it would probably keep their people more submissive nobody wanted to have an insurrection against people who will cut you open and pour your guts out right so I mean that's why he said that right but things didn't go as Ben Hadad planned he's sitting here notice how cocky saying okay well one way or another you know I'm gonna have a few more shots just go out and capture them all alive but that didn't happen. His army just got whooped. I mean, whooped. They got destroyed by Israel. And he had to run like a punk just to stay alive. He jumps on a horse and takes off. So after all this happens, you can imagine Israel's probably partying. They're probably excited. They're probably happy. They're probably feeling big about themselves because they just defeated the evil Syrians. Right? But God says, hold on a second. It's not over. All right, let's take a look at this. 1 Kings 20, starting in verse 22. It says, Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself and observe and see what you have to do, for at the turn of the year the king of Aram will come up against you. So the king of Syria is coming back. So what God was doing is he was encouraging Ahab. He's saying, Listen, don't rest on your laurels here. You need, you need to make sure you strengthen your forces, fortify the city, do what you have to do to be ready. Okay, because he's coming back. Don't get lazy. He's coming back. See, it's important to know the difference between a battle and a war. Do you know what I mean? 
It's important to know the difference between a battle and the war because Israel may have won the battle, but the war was not over by a long shot. We'll look at that again here in a minute. Because here's what was happening. Ben-Hadad was defeated. He was humiliated. So he's gone back to his country. He's got with his servants and he's got with his military leaders and he's trying to figure out what the heck went wrong. How did we lose to those punks? How did we lose to them? 1 Kings 20, starting in verse 23. Now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, Their gods are gods of the mountains. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But rather let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. Do this thing, remove the kings each from his place, and put captains in their place, and muster an army like the army that you have lost. So basically saying another army as big as the one that you just you know, lost in that battle. Uh, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. And at the turn of the year, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to uh, Aphek to fight against Israel. So Ben-Hadad's servant says, I know why we lost. I don't know why I didn't see this before. I know why we lost. Remember, Samaria was built on a mountain. That was one of the reasons it was such a, a good site to put the capital. And to a pagan, he goes, ah, I know why we lost. Their God must be a mountain God. That's what it is. He's a mountain God. You can't fight people in the mountains who have mountain gods. You can't do that. And to pagans who believe in many gods, they're going, that's probably it. That's, he's a mountain God. You know what I mean? And so he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to draw Israel into the valleys, into the plains, because surely their God can't be the God of the mountain and the God of the valley. And we're going to draw them out into the plains, and there we'll be stronger than them. All you got to do is, you know, instead of having kings lead the armies, they're spoiled brats, get, get, get real captains in there. Okay, and then bump some people from surrounding nations. Let's send the same size army in, and, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna win this battle because I know their God is not the God of the valley. And little did Ben-Hadad know those very words were going to doom him. Okay, because listen, if there's one thing God doesn't like, it's to be called weak. Right, and this is basically what he was doing. Now let me pause for a second, because make no mistake, our battle with the enemy is never over either. He never quits. And you have got to be careful because, listen, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this. Have you ever noticed that right when you get through a trial, a difficult time, when the enemy's attacking you, you don't get time to raise your hands in celebration before something else comes? Anybody else notice that? You know, and, and we've, it, it's crazy because we start feeling bad about it. I had someone text me last week, and it kind of cracks me up that this came up. But they text me and, and were talking about some of the things that had gone wrong and asked me if I was okay. Uh, and I responded, well, you know, they crucified Jesus. And the apostle Paul was beaten and martyred, as were the other apostles, all but, you know, John. So I guess I can't really complain about a few people lying and talking bad about me. Right? I guess I should have expected it. You know, because think about this. The enemy, when you win one time, doesn't say, oh, man. Kevin's too tough for me. I'm done. I'm going to go pick on somebody else because that Kevin, he's a scrapper. That's not how that works. Right? He's going, hmm, plan B. I'll come back and get him another time. I'll wait till he's resting to where he thinks everything's perfect, to where he thinks he's got it all figured out, and then I'll come at him again. And that's exactly what he does, just like Ben Haydad. He, you know, he goes through this little time 
to regroup and watch us because we give it away. Did you know that? People say, how does the devil know right where to attack me? I'm like, I've, been, I've known you for three months. I know right where to attack you. You know, I'm not a supernatural being. I can see you're greedy. You know, I can see you struggle with lust. I can see you struggle. You know, I mean, it, we give ourselves away. We show the devil can't read your minds. Did you know that? I want to get that out there because so many people give the devil the same power as God and he doesn't have that. He can't be everywhere at the same time. That's why he has demons, right? He's not all powerful. He's not all knowing. And people always say, well, the devil's after me. I doubt it. I'm trying to be mean. It's probably one of his groupies because I, I really, you know, I think there's a lot more important people out there for the devil himself to go after than me, right? But still, his lackeys are pretty rough. So listen, he knows what we're doing. He watches us for a little bit, then he comes back for another attack. Okay, but spoiler alert, we actually do win this war, right? We do win this war. In the end, Jesus is going to come back, and this is all going to be over, and, and we will win, and I look forward to that day. I swear sometimes I wish it would come tomorrow. Anybody else feel that way? When you look around you and see all the stuff that's going on, and this is a greedy thing to say, and it's a selfish thing to say, but I am human, and there are times that I say, Lord, would you just come back already? You know, but, spoiler alert, we do win when he comes back. But until then, we're going to have continual battles. And how we fight them matters. How we fight them matters because people are watching us fight them. And if they see us give up and whine and sit off at the side and be big crybabies, how much power do you think they'll believe our God has if we give up that easily? Listen, they need to see us fighting these battles confident that we're going to win them confident that we win the war because that's when people will realize we serve a powerful god i could go on that forever but that's another sermon so the next battle draws near let's jump into that and god sends him another message since they have another message it says the sons of israel were mustered and were uh provisioned and went to meet with him and the sons of israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats but the arameans filled the country then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said, The Lord is the God of the mountains, and he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am God. So Ahab's army splits in two, right? They're getting ready for battle. Here comes the battle. So he divides his army in two, thinking he's actually going to look tough that way. And they go out, and the Syrians and the Arameans filled the entire countryside. So much so that the writer said they looked like two little groups of goats. That's how you want your army described right there. You know, it's time for battle. Oh, look at the two little groups of goats. Because we're talking thousands upon thousands, over 100,000 men, well over 100,000 men against two little groups of goats. Right? Because the Syrians just consolidated with another area, and they just had this huge, huge army. So the intimidation factor is definitely with Syria. Right? They've just got this huge, huge army but a man of god told ahab listen again god said he's going to defeat the syrians for you but now god has a new reason he says listen god wants to show you that he is god and he wants to show whoever it was that said he was just the god of the mountains that he is the god of the valley so he had a new purpose here to jump in All right so god was going to prove to both countries who the true god was let's jump in here first kings twenty twenty nine. so they camped one over against the other, seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the sons of Israel killed of the Arameans 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. 
I mean, that's a massacre in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city, and the wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. How bad would that be? Yes, we made it away from the battle. Wall falls on you and kills you. I'd rather been killed out there. Anyway, uh, and Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. So again, Ben-Hadad was defeated. I mean, basically decimated. I mean, just God decimated his army. And once again, like a punk, he escapes and goes into hiding. Once again, right? And again, Ben-Hadad's servant has some advice for him. You're going to crack up at his advice that he has for him. Now, remember last time, to be honest with you, I wouldn't have went back to him. After I told him he's not the God of the valleys and everybody gets slaughtered, I wouldn't go back to him. I would pack my bags and I'd get the heck out of there. But his servant comes to him and gives him, gives him some advice here. Look at this. His servant said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put out sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will save your life. So now his big advice before it was, Hey, let's fight him in the valley because that's a mountain god. Now he's saying, let's just beg for mercy. That's what he's saying. Just dress yourself down and beg for mercy, and hopefully that guy will be good to you. Verse 32. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant. Boy, things have changed, haven't they? Wasn't too long ago he was saying, I want your hot wives and your hot kids. You keep the ugly ones. I want all your money. Then I'm going to take everything you have. Anything we like, your Xbox, your seat, we're taking it all. We're coming in and taking anything you like. Now he's saying, your servant, Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. (laughs) How the mighty have fallen. I don't know why I'm laughing at that. Maybe I'm evil. But that just seems funny to me, right? He says, please let me live. And he said, is he still alive? He is my brother. Okay, verse 33. Now the men took this as an omen and quickly catching his words said, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go bring him in. Then Ben-Hadad came out uh, to him and he took him up into the chariot. Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore and you shall make streets for yourselves in Damascus as my father made in Samaria. Ahab said, I will let you go with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Am I the only one that thinks this is a really bad idea? I mean, am I the, this is a terrible idea. What a bad move. He finally has the man in custody who swore he would crush Israel into dirt. Okay? He has the man in custody who not once, but twice, came to war against him. Right? He has the man in custody who wanted to take his good-looking wives and his good-looking children and leave him with the ugly ones. He has that man in custody. Right? And according to God, he was supposed to get rid of him. But despite all that, Ahab decided to make a covenant with him and let him go. Why? Because he offered to give him some cities back that his father had taken, and he was going to influence one of the local kings to give him a new trade route through Damascus. That's what he was selling out for. And he's like, well, since he humbled himself before me, I'll spare his life. Okay? This was blatant disobedience to God. He was not supposed to do that. This was blatant disobedience to God, and God wasn't happy about it. Listen, by the way, you never win a battle against the enemy by compromising God's word. You just don't do it. You know what I mean? I've had people come to me time and time again with this great compromise that involves 
going against God. You know, I, a young lady came to me one time, and she'd been counseling with me, and I kept telling her, listen, if you're going to find someone to marry, make sure they're a Christian. She'd come out of a very bad relationship. She was with someone who was not a Christian. It was bad. Shocker, the Bible says it would be bad. But she had a new idea. She had a compromise. Even though God said don't do that, she would evangelize to him and, and lead him to Jesus. Because, you know, God didn't think about that when he inspired the scripture that said don't do that. Right? It ended in tragedy, another sermon. But God never says make a compromise. Do it his way, and that's the only right way. And Ahab refused to do that. Right? He refused to do that. So let's look at this. 1 Kings twenty thirty five. Now think about it for a second before I read this. Ahab had every opportunity. He got to witness and experience God's power. He had every opportunity to be obedient, every reason to be obedient, every reason to believe. Two times he had defeated an army ten times his size with hardly any effort, and yet he still isn't being obedient. 1 Kings twenty thirty five. It says, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets uh, said to another man, or said to another by the word of the Lord, Please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. Let me clear this up for you. This is one, says, son of a prophet. Basically, this was a prophet in training, right? And he walks up to another prophet and says, hit me. Okay, that's what's happening. Verse 36, then he said, because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, verse 37. Then he found another man and said, please strike me. And the man struck him, (laughs) wounding him. You know that guy's not going to say no, right? Verse 38, so the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of battle and behold, a man turned aside and, and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hastily took the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him that he was uh, of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go uh, out of your hand, the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and vexed, and came to Samaria. So, God sends this son of a prophet. <laughs> it's not so funny saying that. God sent this son of a prophet. Or sons of prophets, like I said, was just a, it literally translates prophets in training. That's all it was, right? And he sends him with this plan. And the plan is you need to look like you've been attacked. So go ask one of your prophet buddies to hit you because I have a plan. So he goes up to the first prophet buddy and he says, hey, I need you to hit me. And you got to hit me good. I got to look like I've been attacked. And he says, I'm not hitting you. He says, no, I don't think you understand. You've got to hit me. We've got a plan, me and God, and you got, I'm not going to hit you. And he says, fine, then you'll be eaten by a lion. <laughs> like it's so normal. You know what I mean? The way they say that. Like it's so normal. Oh, yeah, well, if you don't do, you're going to be eaten by a lion. How about you're going to be mad at me? Why the eaten by the lion thing? But he was eaten by a lion. So he comes up to the next prophet, and for some reason, that guy doesn't hesitate. He goes, hit me, and he's like, you're on, Right? <laughs> He's not going to get eaten by a lion. So he wanted to look like he'd been beaten up because he, he was going to try to deceive Ahab and get Ahab to admit that what he did was wrong by letting this prisoner go. So he waited for Ahab, and he just pretended to be a guard who had lost his prisoner. He said, listen, tell me what I'm supposed to do. They gave me a guard. They gave me a man to guard from the battle, 
And they said, if you let him go, it's your life or a talent of silver. But when I was busy, he got away. And he says, well, then you're just going to have to suffer because you should have guarded your man and done what you were told to do. Then he rips the bandits off and goes, really? Because God set that man for destruction and you were in charge of him and you let him go. And just like you said, you will have your punishment. And not only you, you and Israel will be punished for that act. Right now, think about this for a second. He just came through two mighty victories. His enemy called him Lord, and he still didn't have enough faith to follow through with the last order, execute that king. Right? We're talking a mass murder is what that king was. He he didn't even do that. He couldn't be disobedient after seeing all these things. So it says he left there sullen and vexed. That just means he left there depressed. But I'll, I'll be honest, it's really hard to feel sorry for him, isn't it? I mean, he got to experience God in ways people dream of. Where God comes in and says, stand back and watch me work. And decimates armies that everyone in the world are afraid of. He got to see that. He got to experience God's deliverance and his power. And yet he still refuses to take advantage of the opportunity. He was led to the water, but he wouldn't take a drink. And in the end of the way, profit was all that was on his mind. Oh, you're going to give me some cities and a new trade route? Okay, to heck with God. Sold God out. Now listen, I want to close with this. All of us are given opportunities to believe, to get to know God, or, you know, to serve Him. All of us are presented with those opportunities, and what we do with them is up to us. Listen, you can either recognize those opportunities and allow God to use you in them, and allow yourself to draw closer to God in them, or like Ahab, you can ignore those opportunities and just live with the regrets. But listen, I promise you, there is no believer out there that God is not trying to get closer to, and that God doesn't have a ministry for and if you, don't know, uh, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I promise you, God is putting handfuls of purpose in your path every day if you look for Him. Because remember, the day will come when all that's left is regrets at all the opportunities you passed. And like Ahab, you leave depressed. This is, this is a really good lesson about how we need to pay attention to what God is doing in our lives because He's doing it for a reason. He's trying to get your attention so that He can bless you. And I don't know how we miss that. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you, Wood, to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an, uh, an invitation. and We just believe the Word of God is powerful, and, and, and sometimes, no matter what the message is, God is whispering in your ear. And I will never leave this pulpit without giving this opportunity. If there's anyone here, that would like me to pray for them. They're not sure where they stand with God or just need prayer. Just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm not going to point you out. Bless those people. Those of you who are listening and watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But believers, listen, the opportunities are all around us right now. We complain, and I complain. I'm not innocent of this. And we sit and look at the political storms that are going on right now, and we look at the messes that are going on around us, and we whine and we complain but do we look for opportunities to serve in the storm? Because I promise you that they're there. And I just don't want to be the one that misses them. So I'm going to pray for you too. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. And we just thank you, God, that you love us even though we don't do much that's very lovely. God, I know me personally. I cannot understand. I know my heart. I know the mistakes I make. I can't 
understand why you could love someone like me because I certainly don't deserve it. And I'm thankful that you have that kind of love for your creation. And I just pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, God, just remove it from their mind and let them know that just like they are, if they'll believe, you'll give them eternal life. If they make that decision, I pray they would contact us. And God, for those of us who are believers, we sit back like spectators and watch the world go by instead of looking for opportunities to make an impact on it while we're here. Let us be more sensitive to the opportunities you place in our way. Let us look for ways that we can serve you and be closer to you. God, we know you don't need us, but we know you want to use us. Give us a heart that's willing to be used. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. We'd ask you to go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray we would come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time. We thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.